Romans chapter 7. If you were unfortunate enough to be around me while we were opening the church this morning, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have said often, if I am not prayed up and filled up and walking in the Spirit when I walk in the door, well, things go downhill fast. And they did. Because um, I just turned into a fault-finding monster. So if, if you got to witness that, I apologize. And I thank you for your grace. Turn with me to Romans 7. Did I say that already? Yes. All right. We're getting back into our study of God's Word. And I love God's Word because it reminds us of His grace. I love reading His Word. I love studying His Word. I love teaching God's Word. I love being reminded of God who's revealed in His Word. I love everything about it. I especially love the depth of God's Word. How it can be simple and straightforward and, and magnificently intricate all at the same time. We talked about this Wednesday when we were going through Isaiah, those of you who were here. But it's true for every book of the Bible. Every chapter of the Bible proves the saying that a child can wade in it, yet an elephant can dive deep in it, right? I remember how excited I was as a new believer to discover that. I don't, even, I don't even think I was a new believer. I think I, was, I think I was still a seeker. But when I discovered I didn't have to check my brain at the door to read the Bible, how it was, it was straightforward and accessible, but at the same time complex and nuanced that beyond a thousand lifetimes of study. And, it, and, it, and it's true for the Bible. It's true for the gospel. It's true for the heart of the Bible. God loves me so much that when I was his enemy, he sent his son to die for me. That's the gospel. And that's, that's, that's the complete gospel. That's the entirety of the gospel. It's true. It's sufficient. But, but, but then, then we stare at it and we start to see layers, facets. We, we, we realize the means of forgiveness was penal substitution and that blows our mind and then we see the prophecy of the gospel and the feasts and the sacrifices and the tabernacle and every detail speaks of Jesus and that blows our mind and then we we start to comprehend all of the other benefits of the gospel adoption and imputed righteousness and identity and that blows our mind the, the more we stare at the gospel the more amazing it gets we, sit, we, we find ourselves saying again and again, don't we? Wait, wait, God, you, you did what? You, you did that? But even as we're doing that, even as we're studying more and more and the gospel is getting more and more amazing right before our eyes, it doesn't get more true. And we've been seeing that in Romans, haven't we? Paul said last week, he, uh, last week, he, Paul expressed, let me back up. We said last week that two chapters ago in chapter 5, Paul reached the climax. He expressed the essence of the gospel. He spent chapters 1 through 4 establishing the need for it. 
the need for a savior, the need for forgiveness. Chapter five, he brings it all together and he, he demonstrates the reality of it. God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans five, verse eight, that's, that's it, right? That's the simple gospel. But having done that in chapter five, having articulated the gospel, Paul keeps going. In chapter 6 and now in chapter 7, Paul says, okay, now that, now that we know what it is, look more closely at it. Study it with me. You've seen the diamond from across the room. You can see that it's beautiful. But get up close and look at the cut. Look at the clarity. Chapter 6 and 7 and chapter 8, for that matter, when we get there, Paul is going to say, hey, consider, contemplate, ponder the implications of the gospel. Stare at its majesty. But at the same time, at the same time, he's, he's beckoning with one hand, inviting us to do that. With the other hand, he's, he's wiping away anything that would besmirch it, anything that would stain it. Verbally, obviously, he's, he's wiping away, doing away with anything that would tarnish or diminish this majestic gospel that he's laid on us. He says, isn't grace incredible? No, I don't mean it's okay to sin more. No, it's, it's not okay last week to go wherever your heart leads you. But it's still incredible, isn't it? And the closer we look, the more incredible it gets. This week, Paul is going to say, keep looking. Keep staring at grace. Keep being amazed by it. But he also knows, okay, sooner or later you're going to say, okay, if grace is good, then the law is bad. And I need to wipe that away. Grace delivers us from the penalty of the law. And that's really good, which means the law is really bad. No, 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 no. If you think that way, you're going to smudge the gospel. Let me wipe that away too. And that's what Paul does in our passage this morning. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not, Paul answers. Every step along the way, Paul's invited us to think rigorously about the gospel. He's invited us to examine this gospel of grace carefully. He doesn't want us back in children's church just accepting what the teacher says unthinkingly because he's the teacher. Gospel isn't a fairy tale. It's truth, and it'll stand up to the most intense scrutiny. So bring it, Paul says. Let's reason together. Is the law bad? Not a dopey question. Paul's not scolding us for asking it. His tone suggests, yeah, I can see how you would get there. Because, yeah, the law condemns us. Paul made that point back in Romans chapter 3. The law declares us guilty before God. That sounds really bad, and it is. But it doesn't mean that the law is bad. The law reveals sin. It doesn't mean that the law is sin. Is the law sin? Paul's answer is emphatic. Certainly not. On the contrary, 180 degrees in the other direction, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law did that for me. I would have not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you should not covet. And, and it did. So I did. But sin, taking the opportunity by the commandment, the commandment, thou shalt not covet, produced in me all manner of evil desire and showed me that it was evil. For apart from the law, sin was dead, dead in me. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. 
and the commandment, which was to bring life, or so I thought, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. But that's not bad, it's good. The law is holy, and the commandment, holy and just and good. What did Paul just say? He said, the law is good. Verse 12 is, is Hebrew parallelism. You recognize that. He's repeating himself to make the point. The law and the commandments that make up the law, and specifically the commandment to not covet, it's holy. It's from God. It's just. It's not evil or sinful. On the contrary, it's good because it comes from the heart of God who is good. What is good about the law? Paul just told us the law reveals stuff. Paul just gave us four things, in fact, that the law reveals. Four things that the law reveals. The first, very simply, the law reveals what sin is. The law defines sin for us. The law defines that tendency we have, that tendency in our heart to want what we don't have to resent not having it, to believe that if we did have it, we'd be healthier and happier and wiser and successful and fulfilled. The law calls that coveting. And the law says coveting is a sin. I needed that, Paul says. Verse 7, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have known that. I would have just gone on wanting stuff, not understanding that it was wrong. But God's law told me it was out of bounds. God's law taught me what sin was. That's number one. Simple but critical. The law reveals what sin is. Here's the second thing Paul just said. The law reveals sin in us. The law not only showed Paul that coveting was wrong, the law showed Paul that he was coveting. There's, and, and there's a reason, by the way, Paul chooses coveting as an example. Ten commandments, 600 more rules added onto the commandments. Paul didn't just pick coveting at random. He picked it because it's an internal condition, unique among the commandments. It's an internal condition as opposed to an outward action. What does that mean? It means we don't see it for a long time. It's not obvious it can go undetected by people watching us and even by we ourselves. That doesn't mean it's innocuous. Left unchecked, coveting that inward condition will lead to outward action. If you think about it, if you've broken any other commandment, you broke the commandment against coveting first. If you stole, if you killed, if you slept around, if you worshiped someone not God, if you worked on the Sabbath, why did you do those things? Because you wanted something you didn't have. You wanted it bad enough to go sin to get it. But it started in your heart, right? Left unchecked, coveting leads to other sin. But it starts in the heart, and it can exist in the heart a long time before it's obvious. That's what makes it so dangerous. Jesus makes this point, he makes this point dramatically in the story of the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, rich young ruler rolls up on Jesus, says, yo, Jesus, who's holier than me? Jesus says, what do you mean? He says, well, I never killed, never robbed, never slept around. Always respect my parents, always tell the truth, always give good measure. Jesus says, wow, I guess you're right. You are holy. Tell you what, sell everything you've got and follow me. 
We could use a guy like you. Mark 22, the rich young ruler walked away sorrowfully. Why sorrowfully? Why was he bummed out? Because Jesus had just brought him face to face with his sin. Had just used the law to reveal the sin in him. Rich young ruler actually believed right up to that moment that he had been successful keeping the law because his actions seemed to accord with the law. But Jesus told him, yeah, your heart, not so much. Romans 3.20, through the law, we have knowledge of sin. Jesus, I've kept the commandments. What about number 10? What about number... Oh. The law reveals what sin is. The law reveals sin in us. Here's number three. Paul told us in our passage, the law reveals the sin nature in us. The sin nature we all have. The part of us, that genetic defect, that even if we're not actively sinning, is ready to, is poised to, wants to, is hardwired to. And if someone tells us we don't get to, you can't sin, you can't do that. If someone tells us not to, it just makes us want to all the more. Wet paint? Really? Well, I guess it is. Cement drying? That would look great with my initials. Keep off the grass. Says who? My taxes paid for that lawn. Sin, verse 8, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. It was latent. It was sleeping. But then the law woke up the sleeping dog. The law poked the bear. The law stirred up desire. And then, Paul says, and it was off to the races. I used to play basketball with a guy a couple years younger than me. I knew him from pickup games around town, and, and we got to know each other because we were both gym rats, and he knew if he ever needed a fifth player that I would probably say yes. And, and this guy, it was so easy to say yes. I'd rearrange my schedule to say yes. He was the best passer I ever played with. If you're a big man playing with a great passer, that's like birthday and Christmas and Hanukkah and just all of the things. <laughs> I mean, I've probably played with thousands of different guys over the years. College guys, retired pros. I played one summer with, with two guys from the Canadian national team. This, this guy from St. Paul, younger than me, favorite, my favorite player to play with ever. And the crazy thing was basketball wasn't even his best sport. He ended up playing pro soccer, and it was obvious even when he was like in middle school that he was going to. The only thing that ever put it in doubt, his... I think senior year in high school, he was busted for running a shoplifting ring. Not, not for shoplifting, for running a shoplifting ring at age 17. <laughs> he was boosting tens of thousands of dollars of designer clothes from Macy's. He and, he and friends, he and, didn't need to. Family wasn't poor, by most, by most standards they were prosperous. On top of which, everyone knew he was going to play pro soccer. So what was the appeal? Why did he do it? Because people said he couldn't. You need to be a good kid. You need to keep your nose clean. You need to keep it between the lines so you get that scholarship, so you get that career. 
story has a happy ending, by the way. He ended up playing pro soccer, got horribly sick playing overseas, almost died, but someone visited him at his bedside, led him to the Lord, and today he's a pastor. <laughs> God doesn't waste. But, but, but here's, the, here's, the, here's the deal. This wasn't a spoiled white suburban kid thing. This is a human thing. And it's always been a human thing. Augustine, great, you know, church, church not church father, but, but one of the early church leaders, Augustine in the fourth century writes about a similar experience he had. Not shoplifting designer clothes. In his case, it was stealing pears. Okay, you do you, Augustine. But he, he tells the story on himself he says, I didn't steal because I was hungry. I wasn't. I didn't steal because the pears were so good. They weren't. I had better pears at home. I didn't do it for the money. In fact, I threw most of them away. It happened, Augustine says, exactly the way Paul says in verse 8. The desire to steal, this is him writing, was awakened simply by the prohibition against stealing. We do the things we do to get the things we want. What do we want? What did Augustine want? What did, what did my pastor friend want? Not money, not popularity, not status. They wanted what we all want, which is to not have to play by the rules anymore. We don't want to play by the rules. We want to make the rules. We want to be our own gods. The law gets in the way of that. Tim Keller actually quotes Augustine's pear story. Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. He quotes the pear A lot of commentators quote the pear story because if you quote Augustine, you sound smart. But, but he goes on to offer this observation, which I think is actually really smart. We have a deep desire, Keller says, to be in charge of the world and of our lives. We want to be sovereign. And every law that God lays down is an infringement on our absolute sovereignty reminding us that we're not God, preventing us from living as we wish. In essence, sin is a force that hates any such infringement. It desires to be God. What was the first temptation from the serpent in the Garden of Eden? You will be like God. That was the essence of the first sin, and it's the essence of all of our sin. Therefore, since the essence of sin is the desire to play God, to have no infringements on our sovereignty, every law will stir up in its original force and power, the more we're exposed to the law of God, the more that sinful force will be aggravated into reaction, into rebellion. The law reveals what sin is, that was number one. Reveals sin in us, that was number two. Reveals our sin nature, number three. And reveals, number four, and finally, our need for Jesus. I was alive once without the law, verse 9, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I was doing fine, Paul says. I was good until the law came along and shows, showed me who I really was. Thought I was doing fine, felt fine. But I was like the rich young ruler, Paul realizes. Smug in my own righteousness until the law came along and smacked me. Commentators like to argue what Paul meant when he, when, he, when he said the commandment came. Is he talking about the Garden of Eden? I mean, that was 
a commandment, but not the commandments. Is he talking about Moses and Mount Sinai and the stone tablets? thing is, that happened before Paul was born, and he's talking kind of like something that happened to him personally. Was this his bar mitzvah when he reached the age of accountability and now he needed to live this? I, I, don't, think, I don't think we need to know. I don't think we need to pin it down to get the point. There came a time. There came a place, an event. Something happened. Paul had his own rich young ruler moment when the law revealed to Paul the truth about Paul. The law showed Paul who Paul really was, and he realized, verse 9, he realized he was a dead man walking. The law said stay off the grass. He couldn't stay off the grass. The law said don't touch. He couldn't stop touching. The law said don't covet. Paul says, hey, man, the harder I tried to not covet, the more I coveted, and the more I coveted, the more I sinned, and the more I sinned, the more I knew the law couldn't save me. The law that had promised to save me was actually condemning me. Sometimes I wonder if that was what's behind Paul's persecution of the church. When we first meet Paul, back when he was called Saul in the book of Acts, he's breathing threats and murder. That's what we read. Every fiber of his being hated Christians. Wanted them dead. Why? Was it because they claimed they were no longer guilty in the eyes of God, the way he knew that he was guilty? Or did he think that, he, that, that somehow killing heretics and blasphemers would atone for the guilt that he knew that he had? The guilty soul that he knew that he was. You can see how the church declaring that they were washed, cleansed, made innocent by the blood of Christ would Paul drive Paul a little crazy. Because he grew up following the law, believing in the law. The law said, follow me and live, and Paul did, and then one day realized he was never going to. The law deceived me, he says in verse 11. But what he really means is, I deceived me. I believed I could do it. I was arrogant enough to think that I could follow the law. But the harder I tried, the more I failed. The harder I tried, the more I died. But it was good. This is Paul's point. It was good that I died. It was good that I realized that I was dead in my sin. And by extension, he's saying it's good for all of us. We all needed to realize that we were dead in our sin. We all needed to realize that we needed to be born again, to be made alive in Christ. The law isn't bad because it can't save. If we were able to follow it, it would have saved. The problem wasn't the law. The law was perfect. The law was just working with bad raw materials. Us. The only reason we don't like the law is it reveals our imperfections to us. The law is perfect. It comes from God. We don't like it because it shows us that we're not perfect. It shows us that we need saving. But that's not bad, Paul says. It's very, very good. The law is good because it reveals our sin. It reveals what sin is, reveals our sin, reveals our sin nature, reveals our sin and our sin nature needs a savior. Well done, Paul. Glad you figured it out, buddy. 
Too bad it took you a while, but hey, you got there. Ooh, be careful. We got to be careful before we go all rich young ruler on Paul. Yeah, the law has shown us, all of us, I hope, our need for Jesus. Does anyone here not need Jesus? I'm not really asking you to raise your hand, but, but if that's you, if you, if you think that, I'm going I'm to invite you, and I mean this, would you give me two minutes after service to try to change your mind? I don't want to beat you up or, or, or barrage you or argue with you, but if this is a new idea... Can I, can I at least unpack it for you? The idea that you've sinned and separated yourself from, from the God who created you? And, 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 and that's just a function of the sin nature you were born with, and that goes back to Adam and Eve, but the reality is you are where you are apart from Jesus. And if you've never said yes to Jesus, oh, you need to. If, if that's a new idea or if it's an idea that you haven't made a decision about, can we talk after service? I really, really mean that. The law shows us our need for Jesus, our need for forgiveness, our need for grace. But forgiveness doesn't automatically end the battle that Paul is describing here, does it? We still covet, yes? Anybody here not covet? I will ask for a show of hands. So I can call you a liar. <laughs> And, 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 and we covet different stuff, right? We got different triggers. Different things set us off. Different things get us cooking. But we all have our weak spots. It might be a store. Home Depot. And I watched some guys go, <laughs> Best Buy. Because I haven't updated in six months. <laughs> Barnes & Noble. I've got 40 books I haven't read, and they need friends. <laughs> might, might be a neighborhood with the house that you've always wanted. Might be a church with the building you've always wanted. Might be social ministry, an idealized picture of somebody else's life, somebody else's family, somebody's health. Different things for different people. But we all still have a sin nature, and because we do, we can all still find ourselves coveting. And if we're not careful, we'll end up in the cycle Paul just described. The law pokes us and provokes us. We covet, and the law convicts us and says to us, hey, you're coveting. Well, so what? Because you're not supposed to do that. Don't tell me what to do. Well, it's not me, it's God. Well, that's, that, that, that's a dumb rule. Why can't I have nice things? They get to have nice things. Why are they better than me? Why doesn't God love me? Why doesn't God want me to be happy? And once we're going, we tend to get going, right? Once we're revved up, object in motion tends to stay in motion. Heart that's coveting tends to keep coveting. Why? Because we don't find the answer to the problem. Even if we find the thing that we think that we wanted, it's not enough. It doesn't fit. It's not sufficient. Someone asked Nelson Rockefeller, well, you know, Nelson Rockefeller, the robber baron, the multimillionaire back when a million dollars was a lot of money, how much money do you need to be happy? His answer, a little more. Always a little more. But while we're chasing a little more and a little more and the next thing and the next thing after that and the thing after that, what's happening? One thing that's happening is our relationship with God is getting jacked up. 
Our love for God is getting messed up. Two great commandments. Love God, love people, right? Coveting messes up our love for God. Why? It's an attack on his character. At the heart of coveting is not the fact that we don't have. It's the fact we don't believe. At the heart of coveting is the fact we don't believe God when he says he loves us and promises to provide what's best for us. Coveting is a belief that we could run our lives better than God. We'd have a better place, better possessions, better position, better peace than God has seen fit to provide. And that in turn, coveting gets in the way of us loving God. That in turn is going to make us go two for two and mess up the second great commandment. It's going to get in the way of loving people. How so? If we think God is holding out on us, Blessing other people instead of us, blessing people more than us, how long before we start resenting those other people? The ones who are getting the blessings that we deserve. Why them instead of us? Why, 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 why not at least them and us? Why can't it be both, God? Starts off, well, he's blessing them, well, fine, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Before long, that lack of rejoicing begets envy. Envy begets bitterness, and bitterness gets in the way of us loving anyone. What's the answer? What's the answer to any sin? When in doubt, say, <laughs> yeah, the way to drive sin, any sin, out of any area of our lives, love Jesus more. How does that apply here? Three things as we head to the finish line this morning. Remembering Jesus, resting in Jesus, rejoicing in Jesus. What does remembering Jesus look like in this context? Starts with remembering it's okay to have the desires. We got to desire the right thing. C.S. Lewis said this Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Of all of the good things that C.S. Lewis ever said, that's one of the best. The issue with coveting, he just said, is we're coveting the wrong stuff. It's okay to desire, but desire the one thing, the only thing that can ever truly satisfy. His name is Jesus. Jesus is a substitute for anything, said Harry Ironsides, but nothing is a substitute for Jesus. Not all of the things piled together can take the place of Jesus. And the irony is we don't even have to covet him. We already have him. We just need to remember him. Remember him and remember to delight ourselves in him. You ever forgotten that you like something? Or someone? My wife, this is strange, but my wife forgets she likes cottage cheese. On a regular basis. Known her for, for going on 30, more than 30 years. Gosh. And, 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 and she'll, she'll go through this cycle. She'll eat it every single day for months. And then one day I won't see it in the fridge. 
And, and a couple weeks go by, a month will go by. And I'll ask, hey, did, you, did you finally have too much? Did you finally overload? Are you done? <laughs> Are you sick of it? No, I just, I forgot to get it. And then I forgot that I like it. And then I kind of forgot that it exists. Okay, I have never done that with food. <laughs> Not that I know of. Maybe I have and I've forgotten. <laughs> but I can be that way with people. People back in New Jersey, people back in Minnesota, people that I've run into along the way. If we don't talk for a while, and then we run into each other at a conference or on a missions trip or we're in Israel or we just, just you know, run into someone and, and, and I end up talking and, you know, I really like talking to them. And Ann will say to me, you always really like talking to them. Yeah, but I forgot. Because I haven't for a while. I kind of forgot what it was like. And, and we can get that way with Jesus, can't we? If we're not talking to him every day, we can forget what it's like. We can forget what he's like. A friend who loves us so much he died for us. God who created the universe in all of its expansive glory and yet numbers the hairs on our heads. Understands us perfectly, provides for us faithfully, blesses us incessantly. When we remember who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, coveting has less appeal. Because coveting means settling for something else, something less. Coveting is, is somebody offering, hey, I'll trade you that one quarter for five pennies. No, I'm good with what I have. Because it's worth way more than what you could offer. First step, remember Jesus. Next is rest in Jesus. Choose to rest in Jesus. We think of rest as passive. It's not. It's active. It's a decision. It's a choice to abide, to be content. Paul hits this theme a lot, doesn't he? He's learned, he says in Philippians 4.11, in whatever state he's in, therein to be content. Godliness with contentment, he says, 1 Timothy 6.6, is great gain. Great gain, because what does contentment do for us? What do we get from it? We get liberated from the need to figure out what's missing from our lives, that X factor, that missing link. If I'm choosing to rest, if I'm choosing contentment, when temptation comes along, when it says, hey, look at this shiny new trinket, I'm impervious because I've already chosen to believe, I've already chosen to trust to rest in knowing if there was something missing from my life, God would have brought it to me. If there was something that would have made my life better, God would have supplied it. John Piper says it succinctly. He says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied. I think that's right on. God is most glorified when we remember and choose to believe he is who he says he is. When we rest in trusting, he'll do what he said he'll do. Provide for us. When we let go of wondering and pondering and looking around and asking, wouldn't it be better if I had this? Maybe it would be better if I had that. 
Because we already have the answer. Coveting goes away. It vanishes. It's like a soap bubble. We look at comparison and we say, well, that's a trap. We see it for what it is. It's soul cancer. And it's unnecessary. Looking around, comparing. Wouldn't it be better if I had what they had? I don't need to ask that. I already know the answer. God has already given me the answer. And I'm choosing to rest in it. And once I'm resting, here's step three. Third element, third component of our cure for soul cancer, delighting, rejoicing in what I already have. Looking at it, thanking and praising God for it. For what he's given me, for what he's given others. When we get to Romans 12, Paul's going to tell us, weep with those who weep. We mostly do that okay, I think. But what's the second half of the verse? The other half of the verse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's actually harder for us sometimes. Weep with those who weep. That's easy. Misery loves company. You're sad, I'm sad, let's be sad together. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Our flesh hates that. Because you're rejoicing because you have the thing that I want. You're stupid. Remember what Paul said when he was indicting the heathen back in chapter 1. Remember what he said about them? Remember he said how you'd know if someone was far from God? They knew God, Romans 1-2, but they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. If I'm all twisted up about how God is blessing someone else, it's a sure bet I'm not thankful for how he's blessing me. I was listening to Maverick City music the other day, because I do, and a song came on that I used to hate that I now have started to really appreciate, Million Little Miracles. And, and it sounds like happy, sappy, Christian, poppy. I've got miracles on miracles, a million little miracles, miracles on miracles, count your miracles, one, two, three, four, I can't even count them all. I was listening to it the other day, and, and it occurred to me, why do, why do I like it when I used to hate it? It occurred to me that along the way, God, God spoke to my heart while I was listening to it and asked me, when was the last time you tried to count your miracles? My mom used to say, count your blessings. If my mom said that to me or my brother, it usually meant count your blessings, starting with, I haven't killed you yet. <laughs> But, you know, if, if, if I'd ever gotten past that, I had a lot of blessings to count. More to rejoice in than I could even list. I never bothered. Why? I, I didn't see the point. I was uncoupled from the source. They were just, it was, it was coincidence. It was luck. It was fortune. Now I realize, no, no, every good thing that's ever happened to me comes from one place. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every blessing in my life and yours comes from one person, Jesus. So my rejoicing needs to start with him and it needs to go back to him. Read one pastor about coveting and, and he referenced a Snoopy cartoon. And it got me interested because my wife is all about Snoopy. And, but, but this was a cartoon published one Thanksgiving. Snoopy's out on his doghouse and he's complaining 
because Charlie Brown and his family are having a big old feast inside. And frame one, he's complaining. Frame two, he's complaining. Frame three, well, at least I'm not the turkey. <laughs> and the pastor, he brought this up because he was recommending that as a cure for coveting. Instead of focusing on what you don't have, just be glad you're not the turkey. It's cute, but I think it's dangerous. I think it's misguided because what happens when you wake up one day and you are the turkey? Just be glad it's not worse. It could always be worse. That's good advice right up until it's worse. That's good advice until it's not. My mom, her first round with breast cancer, her second round with breast cancer, people said, well, be glad it's not lung cancer. My mom, the two-pack-a-day smoker. Be glad it's, it's not lung cancer. Breast cancer, oh, that's treatable. That, that's, 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 a, that's a better cancer to have. Lung cancer, oh. And my, and my mom bought into that. Okay, I'm glad it's not lung cancer. Except the third time it came back, it was lung cancer. And the thing she had been taking comfort in became her worst nightmare. She set herself up. Just be glad it's not as bad as it could get. And then it was as bad as it could get. It became her definition of worse. What do you do when it's worse? Better, better to start off rejoicing from the beginning. Not rejoicing that it isn't worse, rejoicing that it is what it is. And whatever it is, it's the best place I could be. How do I know? God said so. Wherever I am, God put me. Whatever's going on is what God chose for me. Whatever's happening is what God has allowed. Wherever I am is where God wants to use me. Whether I put myself there or whether he put me there by divine providence is where God has ministry for me. And it may not be comfortable for me even a little bit. That still doesn't mean it's not where I can be the greatest blessing to others where his light and love can be seen most clearly by me or by others in me. But that isn't going to happen if I'm not rejoicing. Rejoicing that I get to be there wherever there is doing that, serving God, loving God. I get to do that. I get to serve God, and so do you. We get to serve God, and that's so much more than we deserve. And at the same time, it's everything we need. What are we coveting, really? What more is there than the opportunity to rejoice in Jesus and rest in Jesus and remember without Jesus, the whole world wouldn't be enough. Without Jesus, we could never be content. We tried. And what a perfect thought to take into communion this morning. And we're going to celebrate communion as an open table. I want to do that this morning for, for a specific, there's lots of reasons to do open table. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. This morning, the reason that's on my heart is the picture of how we approach the table. How do we approach the communion table? How do we come to the Lord's Supper? Empty-handed. You're not hauling your Bible up or, or, or you're empty-handed. Reminding us, we bring nothing to the cross except our need. 
We bring nothing to the cross except the need for the cross. We bring nothing to Calvary except our sin. And when we get there, Jesus takes the sin from our hands. He washes the blood from our hands. And into our empty hands, he pours, he pours grace. Into our empty hands, he pours righteousness. Into our empty hands, he pours adoption and inheritance and intimacy and eternity into our empty hands. Blessing after blessing after blessing. Let's take some time this morning to meditate on that. Let's come empty-handed to receive the bread and cup and consider the bread and cup. Remember that on the cross, Jesus met us and filled us and continues to meet us and continues to fill us and continues to provide for us and continues to bless us with so much more than we deserve and everything we'd ever need. Let's let the bread and cup remind us of that this morning. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we choose to rest in that. As we choose to rest in Him. As we, as we decide we're going to rejoice in Him. Free songs. I say that by way of saying no need to line up. There's time. No need to line up. In fact, please don't line up. Let's not turn this into a ritual where we all queue up. Take some time to enjoy the relationship that Jesus purchased at the cross. Becky's going to lead worship. Feel free to join with your voice. Feel free to join in your heart. Feel free to let that fade to background music and pray with the person you're sitting next to. Feel free to take the elements right away and let them serve as a catalyst for prayer and praise. Feel free to wait. Let a song go by. Let two songs go by and partake. Once your heart is, is softened and given over to praise, my point is there's no right way. But let's rejoice together that Jesus made a way. And that way is sufficient.